0: Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, praying for clarity that I would decrease, that Jesus, you would increase, that you might um, give us ears to hear what you were saying today. In your name we pray, amen. So we don't have time uh, to work through every facet, every glimmer that this chapter offers us, and I would encourage you this week to take time to read and meditate on chapter 15, But with our time together, I want to lean into Paul's main emphasis, his main point on the resurrection of Jesus. He lays it out as a foundation and the linchpin of our faith. It's what our present and our future hope rests on. And so we come to chapter 15, and again, we learn that there are doubters of the resurrection in Corinth. They may believe that Jesus rose from the grave, but they deny any kind of future where his followers join him in a physical resurrection. And so Paul's got some words for them. Ultimately, what Paul wants to make clear to them, and I think to us, is that because Jesus lives, we rise. That the resurrection is worth celebrating because it gives us hope in a world that is fading, decaying, and dying. And so we're going to see this through four movements in the text. And the first is in verses 1 to 11. The resurrection happened in time and space. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? Is that your final answer, Henry? Oh, those. Andy. Anybody else? Yes? No? Maybe so? Oh, that was great. (laughs) This is an age-old question, right? And the point of this question is that if there are no witnesses, if there's no one around, can we really confirm or deny that it actually happened? In parkour, one of the things that you always talk about is that you always, when you're trying a new trick or flip, record it. Because if you never do it again, you have proof that it happened. You need a witness. You need someone to verify it actually happened. Well, Paul is not short of witnesses, as he writes, of all who can verify to the very real resurrection of Jesus. He reminds the people of Corinth that this is the gospel message he brought to them the message that they receive, the message that saved them, the message that they need to hold on to. Verse 3, for I delivered to you of first importance. What I also delivered, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's first witness are to the scriptures that we read, hold, and listen to every week. He may have had in mind Isaiah 53, which we read earlier, right? Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Paul's first witness to the real occurring event of the resurrection of Jesus is that it was foretold in the Old Testament. wherein in hundreds of years ago were promises, made by God, of a Savior who would come into the world, live, die, and come back to life so that we could share in his life. So when we look at the cross, we look to the past and we see God's unfolding plan. The Bible, the scriptures inspired by God, point us to a real resurrection of Jesus. But Paul has many more to call to the stand. He points to Cephas, Peter, and to the rest of the twelve apostles. Jesus' closest followers have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember the apostle Thomas, who looks at the others and says, Unless I personally see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe. And you might remember a little bit further along, Jesus comes to doubting Thomas. And he says, hey, put your finger here. Kind of odd, right? Putting your finger through a hole in a person's hand. But Jesus says, this is the proof you need. Come. Stop doubting and believe. But then 500 more witnesses are called to the stand. We now have a forest full of people to hear the crashing of the tree. Paul is exclaiming, the resurrection happened in time and space. It really happened in history. It is real. As real as the holes in Jesus' hands that you can touch and put your fingers through, it really happened. Go, ask them yourself. Many of them are still alive. Go, ask them yourself. They would be eager to share the testimony that they have witnessed. And this culminates with Paul's final witness to the stand, himself. Someone who was once an enemy of God, persecuted, put in jail, and approved the killing of Christians, now testifies to the risen Jesus. That doesn't happen every day. Before Paul presents Jesus as risen, we see him on the road to Damascus. Letter in hand, ready to attack and persecute Christians until he's met by the risen Jesus. This is as real as any moment that we can think of in history. And this is why Paul preaches the gospel. This is why he received it, why we received it, and why we hold on to it. Because Jesus lives. The Gospels are not an analogy or a metaphor to live good, decent lives. These are historical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is important to see because as we continue through 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not risen, then all of this, what we do, what we believe, what we preach is done in vain. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking about these kinds of things. Or even if you are a Christian, you probably have lots of questions about the faith and about the Bible. But I think the one that needs to be sitting right at the top is this one right here. Did the resurrection really happen? Did it really occur in space and time? Did Jesus, who we relived the perfect life, died for your sins your brokenness, did that Jesus really get up from the grave? We need to reconcile the history of this. Because regardless of what you think about his teachings, whether you like some or like, dislike others, if the resurrection really happened, that changes everything for us. If he really rose, then he is who he claims he is. God. And it doesn't matter what you might feel or think or what Jesus has said or called you to, because if he lives, he reigns at the right hand of the Father. Because if he lives, that means Jesus is king. If he lives, it means that he's really died for your sins. If he lives, it means that he has really made a way for you to know and be with God. It means, if he lives, that he has given you the power to live a new life in and through him. This is the gospel that Paul brings. a gospel that is not fairy tale, but is grounded in history. And so before Paul works through a theology of the resurrection, he wants to ground this resurrection in space and time. Oh, it's real, but again, we encounter an issue. Some, we read in verse 12, say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But that, Paul says, is problematic. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Those doubting the resurrection probably believed, in accordance to what many believed in Greco-Roman world, that the soul continues to live, since it is immortal, but the body perishes forever forever. Never. But Paul is pushing up against this. He's claiming that you cannot say Christ has risen, but believe we will not. Because Christ's destiny is our destiny. We are bound to Jesus when we put our faith in him. Ephesians 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms of every spiritual blessing in Christ. Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Romans 8.17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Putting our trust in Jesus means putting all our eggs in one basket. We're betting everything on Christ. All our chips at the center of the table. Our fates are forever bound with his, and so if he has not risen, we do not rise. We've seen amazing advancements in medical medical work in the field. We live in a day where Though we have broken bodies, much of what malfunctions can be cared for. Even organs, vital for the body to function, when they fail, can be replaced. But there's a catch. There's a time limit, right? A heart can only be outside the body four to six hours in order for it to be viable. Meaning for a successful transplant to occur, You need to be working carefully and quickly within that critical time. Because if you put a dead heart in a person's body, will they have life? No, of course not. All you've done is replace one dead heart with another. And this is what Paul is saying. That if we don't rise from the dead, it means Jesus is not risen from the dead because we have received our new hearts from him. The resurrection is the lifeblood. It's the new heart of the Christian faith. Paul continues in verse 14. And if Christ hasn't risen, your faith is meaningless. My preaching? You're better off listening to Oprah or (laughs) Tony Robbins. Get some good motivation. Empower your life a little bit. Take some better steps. Because if Christ hasn't risen... Everything I say is meaningless. It's pointless. My words have no more value than theirs, and they make a lot more money than I do. (laughs) Verse 17 If Christ hasn't risen, your faith, your belief in the work of Jesus for your sins is futile. You are still in your sins. But wait, right? You might be going, but Dexley, hang on, hang on. Doesn't Jesus' death justify me? doesn't that make me right before god doesn't paul himself say in romans 3 24 all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through jesus god presented christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness right and you would say that and you'd be right you guys know your bible but what Paul is saying here is not that the resurrection accomplishes our justification. Jesus' sinless life and his sin-bearing death, they, that does the work. It is sufficient. We're good. But the resurrection instead is proof that we have been justified. If you buy yourself a nice item at a store and you realize it's defective, if you want to return it, what do you need? If you don't have a receipt, what do they tell you? Check your emails. (laughs) And if it's not in your emails, you cry. You will not be able to return that. You need the receipt. That receipt acts as proof of your purchase. Proof that it belongs to you. And the resurrection is our receipt of the greatest, most loving transaction in all of human history. It is our proof that our sins have been paid for. Look, Jesus has risen. The wrath of God is satisfied. Completely, utterly satisfied through Jesus. But if Christ has not risen, then those who have already died have truly lived their best lives here. There is nothing more for them. It is all a waste. That's why Paul says... In verse 19, if we hope in Christ in this life only, if that's all we have, then we are most to be pitied. Now, some of you may be familiar with a contrary idea to this. A mathematician, Blaise Pascal, would offer a wager to the world. He would say that people can choose to believe in God or choose not to believe in God. That God either exists or he doesn't. He said, under these conditions, that if a person believes in the Christian God and God exists, they gain infinite happiness. But if they do not believe in the Christian God and he exists, they receive infinite suffering. On the other hand, if a person believes in the Christian God and he does not exist, they receive small, finite disadvantages in life. It's not that big of a deal. And if a person does not believe in this God and God does not exist, then they gain some good pleasures in this world because Christian morality doesn't hinder you from enjoying life. Pascal states, let us weigh the gain and loss in wagering that God is. Let's estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. So why not be a Christian? Why not? If he doesn't exist, so what? Life would have been just fine for you anyway. And this might sound strange because that's not what Paul is saying. He is not saying, if God, if Jesus hasn't risen, live the Christian life anyway. He says we're most to be pitied. Pascal's words sound nice in a kind of low-risk, high-reward situation, right? If the Christian life really is this low-risk kind of life, if it's meant to be this quiet, peaceful, relaxing ride into the sunset, then yeah, why not? but Paul is preaching a different kind of gospel here. Look at verse 30. Paul says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul's Christianity isn't so easy. And neither will ours be. Faith Is a road marked with suffering. Jesus tells us just as much. He says walking with him means carrying our cross. Bringing the gospel to our family, our neighbors, our friends, it can mean heartache. Bringing the gospel to a world can mean persecution. It can mean ridicule. In some places, it can mean death. The Christian faith is high-risk, ultimate reward. But why would Paul or we risk any of that social desertion, trials and temptations if Jesus has not risen? Paul's answer, if that's true, is let's eat and drink. Let's indulge. Let's get some cake pops. If Christ hasn't risen, there's no reason reason to live any different than anybody else in this world. Let's just YOLO, right? But as we go back to verse 20, Paul says, but but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is not in vain. His message is not in vain. His life, the sacrifices the suffering is not in vain because Christ is the first of what is to come. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's, do, let's have an exercise. Go to Genesis chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 5. So Genesis chapter 5, what is one thing, as you look at Genesis chapter 5, a lot of us will see a gene- genealogy, We see names, but what is the one thing that ties all these names together? Outside of one exception, what is the one thing that is same in every single name listed, every person given here? They died. This is our first obituary. It's our first row call for the dead. All but one, Enoch, shout out to Enoch. Yeah, man, 65 years, walked with God for 365, got brought up to heaven. Good for you, man. But all but Enoch, they die. They die. This is what we receive from Adam. This is our inheritance. Right, we all get something from our parents. Right? I got my dimple from my mom. Malachi is going to get features from both me and Bree. We receive from our family. And this goes back all the way to the beginning. This goes back to Adam. And because of the sin that him and Eve bring into the world, we receive condemnation. We receive death. But what we are told here is that when we join the family of God through Christ, We receive forgiveness. We receive life. We receive a promise of a new body. All human beings are born into brokenness, but God's adoption plan invites you into his family through Jesus. In him, you are made alive. This life in Christ is why Paul says in verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company, ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't go on sinning. Some of you act as if you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Don't be stupid. Stop hanging out with people who keep feeding this lie into your life. Come back because Jesus is coming back. So live as if that's true because it is true. Living in light of the resurrection means conforming into the image of Jesus. It means looking to live a life where we look more and more like Jesus. Because if he is risen, we will rise and we will look like him. You cannot sleepwalk your way into glory. You can't wobble your way into glory. Paul is saying, sober up. Sin no more. Look to Christ. But again, you might ask, fine, you can say that, but how are we actually going to receive new bodies? The resurrection, let's say it's real, but how then are the dead raised? The resurrection church means receiving a body fitted for eternity. This is what Paul goes on to communicate in verses 35 through 49, as he answers this not-so-sincere question from the Corinthian people. Two pictures are drawn for us to demonstrate the awesome power of God. First, the seed which can't know life until it's planted. But when planted, what comes out is altogether different than the seed. Paul is saying if God in his sovereignty and power can cause life to come out of the seed, then he can certainly give humans a new body. Another example of God's power is found in this created world. Look at the differences between humans and animals, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, the moon's moon's beauty, the sun's majesty. Paul is saying that the God who could create such beauty and diversity can most certainly raise us up from the dead in new bodies. This is the proof we're given to believe, verses 42 to 49. Our natural bodies are sown and perishable. We all have an expiration date, a countdown, where, like that organ, we are no longer viable. But by the power of God, what is perishable is raised to be imperishable. What was broken is made to be perfect. This is what we have in God. And Paul wants to be clear to us here that as we work through this, that what is sown must be natural, what is raised must be spiritual. And it's important as we read those words not to get confused, right? Heaven will not be a party like Casper's ghost. We're all kind of just chilling out as a spirit. Maybe we've got some curtains over our heads. No, no. God is fitting us for newness of life. He's making new bodies for us. And this is why he says that the first man, Adam, in him, we see life, but we know through him we have death. It's not until we have Jesus who brings life itself. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Dan preached on the... um, Women with the issue of blood. Do you remember what happens when she touches the garb of Jesus? What happens? She's healed. A woman unclean, seen as dead in her sins, is healed just by touching the garb of Jesus. This is the difference between Adam and Christ. Adam brings death. Christ brings life. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And so we will then bear the image of the man of dust. And so this is required because as we see in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. How we are today cannot receive the promise that God has in store for us then. If you've gotten married, you know the process of having to get fitted. Part of getting married is getting garbs appropriate for the occasion. And not only does a bride have to say yes to the dress, she often has to get tailored. Or the dress must be fitted to perfection for that glorious day. And in that same way, God is tailor-making a body for us. Yeah. yeah really. you I not happy with yours, Sue? God, by the works of his hands, is fitting us for something new and glorious. Something that will never perish something that we can hold on to forever and it will come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet we read the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable whoever changed and in that moment when that happens we read that death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That in this life we cannot escape the sting of death. The sting of sin that plagues us. (coughs) It's that cloud that never goes away. But we are promised that in the end, he will come. This is what we see in verses 21 that the end is coming, God will reign, and when he does, we will be made perfect. But I think even as we read those words, I think a lot of us struggle with what does that mean today? Where is my victory today? What does it mean for the Christian to know victory today? Well, let's learn a new word today. It's called eschatology. Everyone say eschatology. (laughs) Eschatology. Good job. It just means end times, the end, period. And the idea is that the end is coming. And so often as Christians, we can have one of two perspectives of the end. We can have an over-realized eschatology, an over-realized understanding of the end, which means we believe we should inherit everything right now. Why can't things be perfect today? Why do I have to suffer now? Why must these trials come again and again and again? It feels like God is not answering my prayer. This over-realized eschatology forgets that though we are perfect, we are being perfected. That though it is finished, he's not finished working in us and in this world. But then there's an under-realized eschatology, which has a very bleak understanding of this world, where we don't pray, we don't seek God, because we don't think he'll do anything. But we do understand. We live in the already. We do live in the already. The work has been done. We do get to experience the joys of Christ today. Not in all their glory, not in everything we will have, but in part. And so we pray expectingly. We pray knowing that God does and he will answer us. But we do long for that day. That day in verse 57 where we get to really enjoy the victory that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are Paul's final words for us as we consider the resurrection? It's an exhortation. Paul's always going to get one uh, of those exhortations for us. And so he says right in 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so Paul's recommendation, his exhortation, his call for us in light of the real resurrection, in light of a resurrection that gives us confidence, faith, and victory. Live the Christian life. Be faithful to God. Keep going. Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that Everything you give to God is not in vain. Every day, your sufferings that you share with Christ, the joys, the highs, the lows, none of that is in vain. None of it is in vain because the resurrection is real. Because in this moment, Christ is preparing a home for us. Bodies are being fitted us. The cosmos is being restored. And so, because He lives, we rise. Because He lives, we can go on to the next day. Because He lives, we can put our hope in Him. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to really consider what we've read today, what we've heard today. This is the gospel that Paul brings. (coughs) That Jesus came, he died for our sins, he was buried in that tomb, and three days later, he rose from the grave the sufficiency for our sins was displayed on the cross and the proof of God's wrath satisfied is known in the risen Christ. And in the resurrection, we have a promise to newness of life, to bodies being prepared for us where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more aches, no more sadness, no more death, no more goodbyes. God, we long for that day. But until then, help us to be a people who would cling to this gospel, who would hold fast to this truth of the resurrection that promised us life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.